You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. This morning we're going to be looking at a study called Growing in Grace. Growing in Grace. And, and, and the song that we just sung was perfect for this study because it's talking about how the church is to be unified in love and, and building each other up, not tearing each other down not condemning each other, not judging critically uh, each other in the church. And so really this is something that I think is, is, is a really practical, down-to-earth study that we're going to be looking at this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And the title is Growing in Grace. I wonder how many of you have ever uh, heard somebody say, or maybe been one of those people who says, you know, we really just need to get back to the way that the early church was. You know, I've definitely said that. I've definitely been one of those people. But I'll be honest with you. After studying the book of 1 Corinthians, I'm not so sure I want that anymore. (laughs) We have covered some major issues in this letter so far. We've dealt with pride, division, sexual immorality, pride, various marital issues. Oh yeah, and did I mention pride? Because that was a big one in here. It's all throughout the letter. If we're all honest with each other, every church has its issues, doesn't it? We are, after all, one big dysfunctional family. We need to admit that. But we're God's dysfunctional family, okay? Let's not forget that. We are God's children. Praise the Lord for that. Now, Today, we come to the issue of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols and that's what Paul is going to take the time to deal with here in chapter 8 and, and, and also 9 and 10 a little bit too. And I know some of you are this morning just going, phew, I was wondering when we were going to get to that issue because my neighbor has been inviting me over for tri-tip that's been sacrificed to an idol, right? How many of you are like that? Well, of course not, but in the time that the letter was written, guys, the Greeks worshipped a pantheon of gods means multiple gods, and each one had its own kind of idol, its own ritual for worship. There were daily sacrifices at all these different idols, and each one of them, uh, you know, sacrificed meat. And so there was a lot of meat available, and so they would discount it in the marketplace because they wanted to move it. They wanted to move it through the marketplace, so it was sold at a discounted price. And so it seems that there was this issue in the church that arose where there's a question that they wrote to Paul about, hey, what do we do about this? Because there was this spiritually mature camp who, uh, you know, they thought they were spiritually mature, but they were the strong in grace. They felt that they had the liberty to eat this meat. Then there was the other group who had a weaker conscience. That is, they were weak in grace. And they thought that they would be influenced by the demons in a negative way if they ate that meat that had been sacrificed to the idols. Now, obviously, in our times, we don't experience this exact issue. But let's apply it to today's culture. Let's apply it to our experience as Christians. This is the issue in chapter 8. It's Christian liberty. We're talking about the gray areas of our lives that we don't have specific instructions for from the Word. Practices that may not be mentioned specifically here in the Scriptures. So the issue today is what does a Christian have liberty to do as it relates to God's grace? Now obviously this is going to eliminate the clear areas. 
Let's not confuse the two. There are essentials and there are non-essentials. Now, when it comes to black and white areas, such as lying or drunkenness or sorcery, which is that Greek word pharmakeia, which is you know uh, uh, any chemical substance that messes with the brain, I think it's drugs and, and, and that sort of thing. All of those things, lust, okay, that's black and white issues. We don't mess with that. That's off limits for the Christian. We, we shouldn't be even dabbling in those things. But when it comes to gray areas, like alcohol, for example, and, and let me just give a quick disclaimer, I am not endorsing any of the things that I'm going to mention in this sermon. In fact, I'll share my personal stance on alcohol. Uh, I believe that alcohol is a poison. It, it, your body rejects it at every level. So why would I want to put that in my body? Uh, but again, I also fully realize that there is Christian liberty with this. Uh, I'll never forget one of my first mission trips as a youth pastor. We went to uh, uh, Germany, and while we were in Germany at Calvary Chapel Ziegen, their youth pastor invited me and the entire youth group to go to the pub with him after, after our outreach event. And I was just like, what? <laughs> you know, I was like, no, the kids are going back to the hotel, you know? And <laughs> but I went with him because I wanted to hang out with him and get to know him. I didn't want to be rude. And sure enough, you know, in that pub, there were several Christians from the church, and they were having a, a drink, and they were uh, uh, conversing and talking, but that's the culture over there in Europe. It's different than here in the United States. Uh, here, it's, it's, not, it's not normal, necessarily, uh, for that to happen. It's a sensitive issue in a lot of places, and each one has to establish their convictions using Scripture and relying on the Holy Spirit. And, and guys, I've done that. I've wrestled with the Scripture. I know I, know I have the liberty, but I know where I stand. I, I, I do believe it is a poison. The Holy Spirit has led me to that conviction, and, and that's where I stand on that. I don't drink at all, uh, and, and, and I've given up that liberty for several reasons. I'll touch on more on that a little bit later. What about dip or smoking tobacco? I see some of the guys going, ooh, you know, is he going to touch on this again, you know? Grabbing your spittoon, you know, putting it away, you know, real quick. Listen, Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars, okay? I call him the puffing preacher. It so happened that one day a young man asked Charles Spurgeon for some advice. And he said to, to Charles Spurgeon, he said, hey, someone has given me a box of cigars and I do not know what God wants me to do with them. And Spurgeon is reported to have said, young man, give them to me. I will smoke them for the glory of God. <laughs> G. Campbell Morgan, another famous preacher uh, and writer, he also smoked cigars. And interestingly enough, there was another preacher in the time of Charles Spurgeon named Joseph Parker, very influential man for the kingdom of God, who believed that smoking cigars was wrong. And he and Charles Spurgeon kind of had this battle going on because Charles Spurgeon thought that going to the theater was wrong, but smoking cigars was okay. Well, Joseph Parker on the other side of London, he thought that going to, uh, going to the theater was fine, but smoking cigars was a sin. And so these guys had diff were on different sides of this gray area issue. Interestingly enough, both of them were used mightily by God to do great things for the kingdom. What about movies and media and video gaming? Is rated R always off limits just because it's rated R? What about, uh, what do we watch? Is, how do we know what's too violent? How, how, how do you spend time doing, how much time do we spend doing these things? What about social media usage? You know, Paul didn't have Facebook and Instagram and all the other stuff that was available these days. I'm sure he would have utilized them for the glory of God had he had them. But that's not mentioned in Scripture. How, how much time to use on them? Is it healthy for us? 
Is it something that we should be allowing our kids to do? All of these questions, these are gray areas. What about playing cards or poker? Uh, I knew a lady uh, down in Costa Rica who loved to play cards with her friends. And her son went to our youth group. And so, uh, you know, I'd go by his house sometimes, and I was sharing the Lord with her one day, and I was inviting her to our church. And I'll never forget one day as I was walking by on the street, uh, she, you know, she had one of those gates in front of her house. All the houses in Costa Rica have the bars in front of their houses because of theft and things like that. But she called me over to the bars of the gate at her house. And I walked over there, and she whispered to me really quietly. She said, hey, if I go to church, does that mean I have to quit playing poker and cards with my friends? And I said, no, that doesn't mean you have to give that up. And she was so surprised that I gave her that answer because every other evangelical Christian in the community had basically told her that if she didn't give up playing cards, she was going to hell. And it was such a sad thing to see her struggle with that because she loved to get together with her friends and fellowship and have a good time. And and I thought it was just so devastating how these weaker conscience Christians had put that as a, a stipulation on the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about dancing? You know, I've been to several weddings as a pastor. Love weddings. That's my favorite signature move, by the way. But you have to be at a wedding that I'm at in order to see it, okay? But I do want to let you know, hey, what about dancing? It's not in the scriptures. Rick, put some music on, and I'll determine whether you can dance or not, okay? It's that simple. Some of you can, and some of you straight cannot, okay? What about which translation of the Bible should we use? You've got the King James only crew out there, you know? Careful, those guys. If you're one of them, you can come and talk to me. But I don't see eye to eye with you on that view. But what about how do we baptize a person? Is it facing forward? Is it kneeling down, laying back? Is it in the name of Jesus? There's a lot of gray areas. What about what styles of music should we use or listen to? What kind of fashion and clothes should we wear? Uh, what kind of a car should I drive? What kind of a house should I live in? Are these things stumbling somebody? These are all gray areas, guys, that the Scripture is not explicit about how we should do it. So we need to be very careful in the church that we don't get into debates that lead to divisions over doubtful things. Let me repeat that. Be very careful that you are not a Christian who is out debating and dividing over doubtful things. What am I referring to? Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Paul said, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. There are doubtful things, like what a person may think is right or wrong, and what they can allow in their life. We're not to sit around and argue them into seeing things our way. Again, this is dealing with the gray areas only. I want to clarify that. When it comes to areas that the Bible addresses, listen, that's the gospel truth. We need to obey the word of God. But when the Bible is silent, we need not become dogmatic or divisive about something. We shouldn't be dividing over non-essentials of the faith, guys. So in the essentials, we strive for unity. We stand for truth. We fight for what is right. However, in the non-essentials, we need to learn to major on love and grace. A non-essential issue, guys, would be kind of like setting up a Christmas tree in the church. (laughs) But you'd be surprised what kind of church fights happen over silly things like that. 
Now, in studying this week, I came across a poem by an anonymous author called A Modest Creed. And it goes like this. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else. Confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I do, do always as I do, and then and only then I'll fellowship with you. It's written by an anonymous writer. But what religious arrogance is expressed in that poem? That's exactly what Paul is warning us against in this chapter. So now we've covered that this is the issue that we're facing. I want to get into the chapter, but first the theme for chapter 8 is that love builds people up. Okay, guys, Christian love is going to always result in the building up of others. We're not to be stumbling blocks. We're to be stepping stones that actually build one another's lives. Now, there is such a thing as tough love. From time to time. And Paul has, has displayed that for us in this letter. Some of the things he's going to write about are very tough issues. But he addresses them and he confronts the people because he loves them. And he's, he's seeking to edify and to build them up. Now, love is really going to help our church to avoid the two most common extremes when it comes to this topic. What are those two issues? Legalism and liberalism. On one extreme, you have the legalists, those who adhere to legalism. What is legalism? It's a fleshly attitude that conforms to a code in order to exalt self. Let me say that again. It's a fleshly attitude that conforms to an external code of rituals or or whatever it is in order to exalt self. Hey, the focus is on yourself. It's about crossing the boxes or, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and checking the box and getting the stuff done so that outwardly you appear to be a very holy person. But on the inside, you could be miles and miles from a relationship with the Lord. That was the Pharisees. Selfish, focused on externals. They wanted to look good. I could imagine those Pharisees saying something like, we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't go with people who do. (laughs) On the other extreme, though, you've got liberalism. The liberalist is a person who has a fleshly attitude as well that focuses on freedom from the law and all restraints on behavior. Hey, it's all about grace. Hey, it's all, (laughs) I have liberty, you know, and and everything is, 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 is okay. And they have no restraint on behavior. That too is also focused on selfish individualism and is equally wrong. Both of those extremes will divide a church. Both of those extremes are selfish in their core. In chapter 8, Paul is telling us we need to find a biblical balance. We need to have liberty, but liberty that is tempered by love. Love first for God, and then love for the brother or the sister for whom Christ died. He gives us, or he really expresses this in three main ideas or points. And the first one on your outline, if you're following along, is that we need to be concerned about our own attitude. Verses one through three. Look at those verses with me. It says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Paul's backing up a statement that they've already said, obviously. They all know that they have knowledge. But then Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. 
And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him, by God. So let's pause right here for a moment. Paul's letting in the, the, the Corinthian church know that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up, doesn't it? Why, just this morning as I was on my, uh, getting ready for church and oh, just about to leave, I noticed that my children were kind of having a discussion at the kitchen table over breakfast. You see, one of them happened to be in the know about a certain fact. And they were just asserting that to their brothers and sisters that they were right and they were, you know, th- this, this child was right and the rest of them were wrong. And it was getting escalated. You know how it goes with kids. They, they know a lot of things. And when they think they know something, boy, they're ready to die for it, you know? And, and so the table was just having this big discussion. And I had to step in and say, guys, guys, it's number one, the fact that you're arguing about is so silly. You know, why are you wasting time arguing about it? Number two, you're really treating each other in an unloving way. But that's what happens. Knowledge puffs up. We all have knowledge, Paul says. We all have knowledge. He's acknowledging what the Corinthians were already saying. They were saying, look, we all know that eating meat, whether sacrificed to an idol or not, it's just eating meat. Paul's like, yeah, we know that. But then he says, your attitude stinks, though. Your attitude stinks. And Paul's pointing that out. He tells them, once again, you're puffed up. You've got an ego problem, an I problem, we might call it. The definition of knowledge is simply the state or act of knowing something to be true. That's what knowledge is. It's just a simple knowing that something is true. But it's also been said that knowledge is passing from a state of unconscious ignorance to a state of conscious ignorance. I like that. It works good for me. I go from unconscious ignorance to conscious ignorance. That's what knowledge is in my life. I'm just a conscious ignoramus when it comes down to it. Well, it's also been said that the human body is sensitive. You pat it on the back and the head swells. Knowledge, however, when it is gained only for knowledge's sake, it's actually detrimental to God's plan for the church. You might have a big head, but you could have a little heart to go along with that. That's what the the Corinthians were facing. They had big heads, but little hearts. Now, in contrast to knowledge that puffs up, Paul says that love edifies. Verse 2 and 3 there in chapter 8. Love edifies. He states that their statement about knowledge proves that they obviously don't have the right attitude towards their weaker brothers. What is the right attitude that we're to have, guys? Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 tells us, It says, for I say, through the grace that is given to me, to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So listen, guys, we're not to go around thinking grand thoughts of ourselves, that that we're more than what we really are. You know, it's been said that humility, true humility is the ability to be honest about yourself. What are your gifts from the Lord? What are your strengths? What are your talents? And what are not your gifts? And what are not your strengths? And what are not your talents? You know, it's always hard when somebody thinks that they have a gift of singing and they don't, isn't it? (laughs) 
And they're just belting it out, man. And whoa, you know, going for it. And you're just like, oh my goodness, you know, somebody needs to break it to this person that they cannot sing. I'm one of those people, okay? Just so you know, I claim that verse. I, even I will sing. That's, that's back in Deuteronomy. But um, anyways, we always have room to grow. That's my point, guys. As Christians, we need to learn to set aside egos. And we need to think serious thoughts about ourselves, not puffed up thoughts, not arrogant thoughts. This is where love comes into play. Notice in verse 3, that love for God is the key here. You see, when we know that God knows us, that he knows our hearts, and yet he still loves us, that should motivate us to love him back, and it should motivate us to love others in the way that God loves us. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan, right? That Jesus taught to his disciples when he was teaching them about love, brotherly love. There was the priest, the priest who worked at the temple of the Almighty God and knew the law, knew God's heart, but he had the head knowledge, but he didn't have it in his own heart. And as he walked down that path and saw the, 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 that man that was beaten and laying there for dead, left for dead, he, he moved to the other side and passed on by. We also know that there was a, a Levite who came from the tribe of those that were called to, to be set apart unto God and to serve the Lord. He had head knowledge. He knew what he should have done, but he too went to the far side and crossed by. It was the Samaritan who came, and on the other hand, who was motivated by love to pick that man up out of the road, to take him to the inn, and to care for his wounds, and then to leave money for the future care of that man. That man really captured the heart of God. And that's the heart that you and I are to have. So the application for us here this morning is that if you're going to be a true Christian, if I'm going to be a true Christian, then we need both knowledge and love. You see, Paul is not against having knowledge. Christianity is not against having knowledge. No, we're all about studying. We're all about gaining knowledge, but if that knowledge is just leading us to be puffed up, then it's not doing what God wants it to do. That knowledge needs to be coupled together with love, the love for God and love for people. And we come now to Paul's second main idea in this chapter, and that is to be concerned for your fellow believers' knowledge. Be concerned about your own attitude, but also be concerned for your fellow believers' knowledge. Verses 4 through 8 says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him and Lord and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Verse seven. This is where this is the key verse here, where Paul is making a point. He says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. Let's pause right there. So Paul is saying, look, you guys know a lot. 
In fact, here's what they know. And he starts there in verse 4, listing several things that the Corinthian believers were boasting about. They were boasting about their knowledge, the things that they knew. And he says, yeah, look, you guys know a lot. You know that idols are not living entities. That's good. It's good that you know that. Hey, there's a lot of things that people worship. There are a lot of things that, that, that are out there as, that exist as idols, but they are not living entities. And then he says, there's, but there's only one God, the God of the Bible. And he says, you guys know that. That's good. Glad that you know that. Thirdly, he says that names and realities are different. Hey, you could call something God, but that doesn't mean that it's actually true because there's only one true God, the God of the Bible. He also says, he acknowledges that that one true God is also the source of our existence. We exist for him. Yes, God created us so that you and I can enjoy him and glorify him forever. That's why God created us. And and the, the Corinthians, they knew that, but they also knew that there was one true Lord, There's only one true Lord. Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So if that's true, he's the source of our life and we live for him. That's all facts. Those are all things that we know. You know, a lot of Christians know those things. But it's not about what you know. It's about what you do with that knowledge. And in this chapter, Paul, he makes a point. Hey, you know a lot, but here's what you left out. Here's what you're forgetting. In verse 7, look back at verse 7. In verse 7, Paul points out what they didn't know, what they had forgotten, and that is that not everyone has all of that knowledge. Not everyone knows those things. So we see that knowledge here by itself was saying, hey, I have liberty, but love, on the other hand, says, I don't want to stumble my brother. I have knowledge, I have liberty to do these things, but love... The motive of love needs to be coupled together with that and say, look, I don't want to stumble my brother. Notice there in verse 8, Paul is making the point that it's not the exercising of liberty, nor the having of the weaker conscience that makes a person spiritual. Did you notice that? So, so those of you that might be going around thinking you're spiritual because you don't do certain things, you're not really spiritual because of that. Let me, let me plug it into an example. Some Christians get caught up in, in certain things. You know, they, they might boast about, well, we don't have a Christmas tree, they might say. We don't believe in that. And that's fine. That, if that's what God has led you to and that's your conviction, that's great. But listen, that is not what makes you a spiritual person. According to verse 8 right here. Others will say, well, we have liberty to drink. We have liberty to, to drink a beer, to have a glass of wine. Well, that's great. But you don't need to go around boasting about that because guess what? That's not what makes you spiritual. That doesn't commend you to God. You're confused with that. So we need to be careful there. You know, there was a, a moment in my uh, being a pastor of the College and Career Group back at Calvary Chapel of Vista, I'll never forget. Uh, there was a really good friend of mine who joined Youth with a Mission and went on a trip to Africa. And it was a life-changing trip for him. While he was over there in Africa, God was really doing a work in his heart, setting him free from a lot of bondage, a lot of spiritual bondage. You see, he was, a, he was kind of a legalistic person. He would condemn other Christians for doing certain things, certain practices that were, you know, gray areas. And he would condemn them in his heart and critically judge them. And, and so while he was over in Africa, the Lord was really working on him in that area and setting him free, giving him a, a, a spirit of freedom from those things. And he, he, uh, 
got back from his trip, and he couldn't wait to go to lunch with me. And so I scheduled a lunch date, and, and I took along a guy in our college and career group who was a young Christian. He was a baby Christian. He'd just gotten saved, and uh, I took him along with me, and we were doing his discipleship together. And so we met with my friend. I thought, this is going to be a great opportunity for him to hear about the stuff that God was doing over in Africa, right? And we sat down at the table, and my friend he launches into this story about how the Lord had set him free from, you know, all kinds of things. And while he was over there and he went to a doctor and he was, he was having some sort of a, uh, an issue, a physical issue, a health issue. And so he had to go to a doctor uh, for some testing. And the particular substance that was being tested, I, I can't, I, I don't really want to get into the details here at church, but the doctor kept using a foul word. He kept using a cuss word to describe this substance, and he said it over and over again, and my friend was just, you know, chuckling to himself, like, yeah, see, this, it was like God was showing him, yeah, see, it's, it's okay. In different countries, different cultures, they use different language, and it's just, it's okay, you know? And, but he was using the bad word while he was telling the story. So he kept repeating this bad word while we're at the table, and I'm looking at my friend, and I'm going, you know, and I'm trying to look at him, and I'm going, yeah, yeah, cut it out, quit saying that word, you know. Well, afterwards, my, my friend approached me, the, the, the kid I was discipling, and, and he said to me, he said, so is it really okay for Christians to cuss like that? And I was just like, no, it's not okay. Don't do that. You know, that's, it's, it's not edifying. And I shared that with my friend, and he was so bummed, you know, and he went and talked to him, made everything right and stuff like that. But it was, it was a, a moment for me where I learned that with great liberty comes great responsibility as well. With great liberty, guys, comes great responsibility. So the question comes up, well, how are we then? How are the strong supposed to relate to the weak, the weaker brother? And by strong, I mean those who are set free in grace. How are they to relate to those who are, uh, have a conscience that is easily stumbled by knowledge? Perhaps as a baby Christian would be. Well, let's turn over to Romans chapter 14. And you're going to have to turn there because I don't have the verses on the screen. So turn back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. In Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul's got some great advice for us, some great words for us. And, and I'll wait till everybody gets there. It's just a few pages behind uh, where we're at in, in your Bibles right now. Romans chapter 14, starting there in verse 1, says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. I love that verse. I love to quote it to my vegetarian friends, you know. I just hack them up with the word of God, you know. It's so loving. I just I love on them like that. But Anyways, let not him, verse 3, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So Paul's got some great words here. He says, listen, for the strong in grace, you're to receive the weaker brother and care for their souls. The strong are not to be proud and looking down on the weak. And yet also, notice that Paul has some counsel for the weaker conscience brothers. He says they're not to be judging the strong because of their liberty. They're not to become critical of them just because they practice a greater freedom than they themselves have in their conscience. 
So here's the application, guys. We need to be asking ourselves the question, am I stumbling anyone? Am I stumbling anyone? And if you're not that person, if you're the, or if you have a weaker conscience, then you need to be asking yourself the question, listen, am I critically judging anyone in a gray area where the Bible, you know, where they may have liberty, Christian liberty? Those are the questions we need to be asking ourselves. But let's remember something here. God clearly has received both the weaker and the stronger. So can you receive them too? That's the real question that we need to ask ourselves. Can you receive the brother who's strong in grace? Or if you're weak in grace, or if you're strong in grace, can you receive the weaker brother? Because God has done that. Can we allow God to work in our lives just as he's working in the life of that brother or that sister, changing them over time just as he's changing us? So we come now to the final idea of Paul in this chapter, and that is to be concerned for the weaker believer that Christ died for. Look at verse 9, uh, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm sorry, and, and keep your finger in Romans 14 because we're going to go back to that, but, but 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Paul says, But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So notice with me, guys, there in verse 9, we find the principle. The principle Paul is telling us is, don't let your liberty become a stumbling block for a weaker brother. That's the principle here. In verse 9, that word for stumble in the Greek language, it's scandalon. And it refers to a scandalous thing. In, in, in other words, what he's saying is that your, if your liberty, if your freedom uh, creates a scandal in the conscience of the weaker brother and it causes them to stumble in their faith, that's a sin, guys. That's serious stuff. Serious business. In other words, if, if you, your liberty creates a scandal which causes a person who's, who's in the faith to weaken in their faith and to pull away from Jesus and, and to be drawn away from the Lord, then that is a sin. And you need to be careful. You need to repent. You need to confess and, and turn away from such things. <clears throat> Paul brings that sin into it in verse 12. We all know that eating meat, he's, he's, you know, he, he reminds, eating meat is that sacrifice to an idol. That's not a sin, but this is. To put Christian liberty selfishly above your relationship with a weaker brother or sister in Christ is actually sin. He talks about wounding their weak conscience there in verse 12. You know, our conscience has been given to us as a guide but it is not the most reliable guide. We shouldn't rely solely upon our conscience. What is it that is to educate our conscience? It is the Word of God. Our conscience is to be edified and educated by the Word of God, the light of God's truth. As it is, it is being shaped and molded, and then it becomes a good guide. 
But if a conscience is only being guided and shaped by the past, from evil events in a person's life, and it's not fully developed in Christ, it's not yet set free by grace, well then, yeah, it's going to stumble over certain things. Certain things they're going to see, it's going to see and go, wow, that's, that's, that's wrong. Because of their uh, past, because of the evil things that have happened in that person's past. And, and so they need to, we need to give that person, hey, we need to receive them as a brother or sister for whom Christ died, Paul says. And we need to have concern for them, for what they know and what they don't know. And we need to allow the Holy Spirit to work in them, to bring them up and to allow the Word of God to develop their conscience. And that is why they stumble over the freedom that other believers may have is because of that weaker conscience. Paul gives us the application in verses 10 through 13. The application is so simple. I'm I'm not going to read the verses right now, but notice there in verse 13 that Paul was willing to allow his own body to suffer rather than to cause a weaker brother uh, for their soul to suffer. That's a great example, guys. To anybody here who's a leader of a family, to anybody here who's a leader serving in church, to anybody here who's a pastor, myself included, if we are going to be spiritual leaders, then listen, we need to learn to lay down many of the liberties for the sake of others, for the sake of our wives, for the sake of our kids, for the sake of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Guys, that's just something that has to happen. Now, I said earlier, you know, my personal conviction is, is when it comes to alcohol is I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to drink. That's my personal conviction. And, and I've come to that personal conviction through the studying of Scripture, believing that, hey, that's a substance that's a poison to my body. My body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Why would I want to do that? And, and, and that being also something that also, on, the, uh, on top of that, I would hate to stumble a brother or a sister in the Lord that had a, a, a weakness in their conscience regarding that area of Christian liberty. I would hate it if I was the cause for them to be departing from the faith or to be drawn away from Jesus. And so in that area, I've laid that liberty down. And that's something that I believe that as Christian or as spiritual leaders, we have to learn to do. Not just that area. I'm talking about any area that could stumble somebody in our lives. Listen, when you have a baby, you baby-proof that house. I remember when we had our daughter Eden, our, my firstborn. She, uh, you know, we, we went over the top with that. You know, I mean, I guess parents do that with their first kids somehow. But, I mean, I was sticking uh, those little plastic things in every single outlet in the house. I was baby-proofing the cabinets and the drawers. You know those things that you come back to them later and you're like, how do you want to do this again? You know, it was, I was adult-proofing the house, basically, in my case. Like, it was too much for me to handle. But we don't leave guns or knives laying around when we have toddlers wandering around in our house, do we? No, because that would just be wrong. Because of their stage of life and their level of what they can, what they can handle and what they can't. So why would we do that in the church, guys? What, what makes us think that we can just go ahead and exercise, put our Christian liberty above and beyond anything else in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in the Lord? It's not right. We need to learn to receive the weaker brother. Let me wrap this up this, this morning with this application. Flip back over to Romans chapter 14. 
Romans chapter 14, I want to read verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Such good counsel, guys, right out of the Word of God. Let's let it bless us this morning as we read it. Follow along in your Bible. Romans 14, 13. Paul says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. If you underline Bibles, underline that one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So listen, guys, the kingdom of God is not these activities, these gray area activities, but it's really righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's spiritual maturity. That's where our spiritual life comes from. Verse 18, for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Verse 19, therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your, st- your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. So listen, guys. We're to be guided by the Holy Spirit in these things. Hey, if you have faith that something is, is, is your liberty and you're, it's okay for you in Christ, hey, have that between yourself and the Lord. That's great. But if, if you don't have that faith and you're not sure that that's, you have liberty to do that, well, then the Holy Spirit is convicting you on that. Hey, stand firm. You need to get to, into Scripture and find out why you need to have that conviction or maybe why you don't need to have that conviction, why you've been set free from that. But that's the Word of God, and it's meant to lead us and guide us in these areas. You know, <clears throat> Spurgeon eventually stopped smoking cigars. He was walking along one day and he saw a sign in a tobacco shop window that said, we sell the same kind of cigars that Spurgeon smokes. And he realized in that moment he was stumbling many. And because he didn't want to be responsible for causing others to violate their conscience, he stopped smoking. What is there in your life this morning that is stumbling somebody else? Perhaps your children you know, I talked about alcohol before. I'm going to talk about it again. I'm going to beat that dead horse. But listen, I don't want to stumble my kids. I don't want them to see something that could cause them later on. You know, it, would I open a crack? I don't want them to have the opportunity to bust wide open and to walk in that. It would break my heart. But, I mean, I'm not saying that, that that's going to happen. But I have to, I have to, you know, I have to deal with that before the Lord. So, That's the question I'm asking you this morning. Is there anything in your life that is stumbling someone else, perhaps your children? And on the other hand of that, is there something in your life that you're critically condemning others or judging them in that's not right? Okay, we have to ask ourselves that question as well. 
We're called to be stepping stones, not stumbling blocks. We're called to be building others up in the kingdom of heaven, not tearing them down. So how do we grow in grace? Well, I've put some uh, points in your outline. I'm not going to go over them right now because that's your homework. I want you to take that home today and in your life group or in your family devotion or in your personal quiet time, I'd like for you to take that out and just to look at that list and to go over that because I think it has some great application points of how you and I can grow in grace as Christians. Let's pray.